And of course, it presumes that their scripture is foundational and is the foundational source of truth and that your scripture, while it's in their scripture, they've got it better because your scripture has got fundamental flaws that Joseph restored, that Joseph corrected. So just from a kind of a foundational presuppositional view, they believe that the final authority for them was in scripture, but it's their scripture is where it lies and that our scripture can't be trusted. So at some point, uh, my experience as an investigator helped me to kind of sort out which of these two books was in fact the true revelation of Jesus Christ, what actually happened to Jesus. And I'll share with you today how I got there because I examined all of this before I was even convinced there was a God. I simply walked into a church at 35 and uh, my wife would have me go to church occasionally. She had an interest more than me. She wasn't a Christian, but she was more interested than I was. And I was willing to go as an atheist, but I was not interested in Christianity. And I would go and just sit in, and once in a while, once every couple of years, and we had moved into a new neighborhood. We hadn't been to church in three years. So I spent some time um, with her one day on a, on a Sunday morning at a huge megachurch where the pastor was just clever enough to paint Jesus as a smart guy. You should listen to him. He's got some things to say to you that might help you out. And so being a kind of self-possessed, arrogant person, I said, okay, I'm more than happy to steal some truth from Jesus. The same way when I was a kid, I read through all the writings of Baha'u'llah, the prophet from Baha'i, and all the, you know, reading the Quran or reading uh, Hindu uh, literature. I was more than willing to read through any ancient sage that might have wise words for a guy who could use some wisdom. So I bought my first Bible, and I started reading through the red letters just to get the wisdom of Jesus. I was not interested in anything else. I wasn't, had no intention of going past the Gospels. If it wasn't Jesus' teaching, didn't really care. The problem was that Jesus' red letters are embedded in the Gospels, which are historical accounts. And it forced me to kind of examine those accounts. And right away I saw attributes that I recognized from my casework. And so I started getting interested in the Gospels. And that's how I started the whole thing. And that caused me to rethink what I thought about God. Because if this guy could actually rise from the dead, there's something up, right? Something fishy. <laughs> so I wanted to figure out what it was. And that's how I kind of backed into all this. Today, I'm going to share some of the wisdom that I've learned in um, working cases that might help you. As you, if nothing else, make a case for what you believe. Now, Phil and Jason asked me to come. We've known each other from our experience together at something called Cross-Examined Instructors Academy, where we were over the summer together. And they trust me to have a certain amount of reasonable wisdom, but they probably shouldn't. And I'm going to explain to you, I'm going to demonstrate for you know, why you really probably shouldn't trust me, by the story of this young lady, Elizabeth Devine, who is a uh, criminalist in the Los Angeles County um, Crime Lab. Los Angeles Sheriff's Department runs this crime lab, and she was one of the foremost experts there. She was really great. I mean, super good. And about 15 years ago, in a case that I was working for my dad from 1972, it was a case that my dad had when he was a detective. It was an unsolved murder, and I really wanted to solve it. You know, you want to solve your dad's cases, right? More or less, so you can say, you couldn't do it, but I did. Uh, no, but I felt like, you know, you want to do that. So I, I opened this case, and I called Liz, and I said, Liz, I have DNA from the victim. I'd like it to be processed. And, you know, it's a cold case, no trial date, nobody's in custody, which means nobody wants to work it. The crime lab does not want to spend time on it. If you don't have a trial date 
Forget about the crime lab trying to help you. They got thousands of cases they got to work, okay? And your case, you're fishing for a suspect from 1972? Yeah, here it is on the list, okay, really low. So I called her and I said, can you do me a favor and just move it up? I just want to submit it to CODIS, which is the uh, sex offender database of DNA in California. I just want to get it in. He could be out there right now. We could make him tomorrow. We could solve this case in one day if you could just get this CODIS into CODIS. And she said, well, I'd like to help you, but I'm going to be gone tomorrow. I said, well, fine, can you do it next week for me? I can wait a week. We've waited 30 years. She said, well, I'd like to, but I'm not going to be here next week. Where are you going? I got another job offer. What? You're kidding me. Yeah, I got this opportunity to consult on a TV show. What's the name of the show? CSI. I'm making a show on CSI? Yeah. What's the offer? Well, one year, it's open contracts, about $250,000. I said, man, I wouldn't do it. I think you're crazy. I mean, think about it. That's like three years' income, right around three years' income, without the benefits of your health insurance and your retirement. This is a county job, right? This has got good benefits. You're nuts. She's raising two kids on her own. I'm thinking, why in the world would you leave a steady paint? Yeah, you're going to burn a bridge, right, in order to take this job. Oh, yeah, I've already burned a bridge. They're already all mad at me for leaving. But I said, I wouldn't do it. I think you're silly. On a, you're going to get taxed half of that right off the bat. And, and for what? For a one-year guarantee? Shows come and go all the time. So you think that was a good decision on her part? Bad advice on my part? She actually was so talented that she wasn't just as a consultant. She was like writing episodes. If you go on the IMDb and look up Elizabeth Devine, you'll see that she's written episodes for a ton of CSI episodes and a ton of like uh, NYPD Blue. I mean, she's written all kinds of episodes in, in the time that she's been. As a matter of fact, when they launched CSI Miami, they made her the executive producer. That's been canceled. But for those, and she's still in the industry doing other things. But when she signed for CSI Miami, that was a five-year contract at $5 million a year. Please redact that out of the recording of this. Do not let that get out. And as a result, um, she, I, I, when I, she signed this contract for, for uh, this. I said, oh my gosh, let's, I texted her. I said, do you remember my advice to you years ago when I called you that day at the crime lab? So she texted me back. She says, I'm at the market laughing at you right now. <laughs> so this is the wisdom you're going to get, my wisdom on this issue. You can take it for what it's worth. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust myself. But I said, hey, Liz, if you got this kind of insight and you're this well-connected, can you get me? I work for an agency in South Los Angeles County called Torrance, Torrance Police Department. Right? We are part of Los Angeles County. And um, I said, hey, maybe you can do a show for me. We could do a CSI Torrance. And I sent her a picture. <laughs> and she uh, said, no, I don't, I don't think so. So I said, well, we could do a... Um, Maybe a cold case thing. Maybe you can get me on the cast of cold case. I would look good in that cast. I just watched cold case last night. First time ever I watched it last night. I realized, hey, I recognize her. But look how good I look next to her. I think we should put me in there. No, no I can't help you. I got a movie idea, really good movie idea. You get, this is, I think would work. What do you think? Quantum of Wallace. Uh, no, she said, I've got an idea, though, since you're so big-headed. How about this? Megamind. <laughs> So I said, okay, yeah, I'll just stop sending you emails. Okay, so we're going to talk today about some of the pushback that you might get. And this is why I think it's important for us to be able to defend what we believe, because there's an entire generation of young, not young, but um, new atheists, uh, kind of a new attitude of old atheism, that argues that what you guys have is not only lacks evidential support, it's dangerous. 
So someone like Dawkins would say that many of us saw religion as harmless nonsense. Beliefs might lack all supporting evidence, but we thought, hey, if people need a crutch, where's the harm? And of course, September 11th changed all that. You religious fundamentalists are every bit as as dangerous as every other kind of religious fundamentalist. It's folks like you who eventually end up flying planes in the buildings because you believe something is true for which there is no supporting evidence. As a matter of fact, that's the problem. There's a gentleman writing a book that's coming out next month. He's an atheist who's trying to show other atheists how to strip Christians of their faith. And he doesn't do it by showing evidence, because he argues that Christians don't even have an epistemology, they don't even have an attitude toward knowledge that requires evidence. These fools believe this stuff in spite of the evidence. With no evidence, they believe this stuff. So don't think for a second you're going to be able to persuade them with evidence. They don't believe this stuff on the basis of evidence to begin with. If you ask a Christian why he believes, they're going to be speechless. So his approach is to attack the epistemology of believers. In other words, attack how it is we know anything in the first place. And he's had great success by shaking Christians, by actually attacking how they know something. What I love about these kinds of opportunities is that we can come together and learn about how it is we can come to a truth claim. How can we know this is true? If you ask my Mormon family how they know this is true, it's certainly not on the basis of evidence. If they examine the evidence, they get out right now because there is no evidence to support anything that Mormonism teaches in the Book of Mormon about the North American continent from the years 400, AD to, uh, 400 B.C. to 600 A.D. There's no confirmation for any of that evidentially. But that's not how they got in. They got in through an experience, a confirmation they had, which they say was a spiritual confirmation. They prayed about it. They know it's true. They know Joseph Smith's a true prophet. Is that how we know this is true? That's how the atheist world sees us. We believe this stuff without any supporting evidence. That's just not true. For me, anyway, I could never jump into something without supporting evidence. I just, that's just who I am, right? I mean, I'm in an evidential field. The question is, do we, does, does Dawkins even know what evidence is? Well, he'd say, well, it's not, you don't have any hard evidence. You don't have any direct evidence. You don't have any forensic evidence. You have your arguments about God from cosmology and from design. That's not evidence. It's just arguments. You have no evidence. That's because this knucklehead doesn't even know what evidence is. I doubt he's ever worked a case where he had to employ evidence. And that's what the whole question is. The whole question is, what counts as evidence in the first place? And that's what we're going to talk about right now. What precisely qualifies as evidence? Now, I want to say that I think there's a great similarity between working... um, cold cases and examining the Christian worldview. Think about it. Cold cases, we look at an event in the distant past for which we usually have no living eyewitnesses. If we had living eyewitnesses who can say, I saw him do it, it wouldn't be cold. We would have solved it back then. We don't usually have those kinds of cold cases are usually open for that reason. We don't usually have good forensic evidence. I've never made a case with DNA. I would like to. I try to. Man, I would love to. That'd be so easy, but I just haven't had that kind of luck. Some people do. I just haven't had that luck. My cases are made circumstantially. We assemble evidence that points to the same reasonable conclusion, and then we make a decision about it. Okay? That's exactly what we do to solve cold cases. All of my cases are like this. Just had a case on Dateline in March. 1981, man kills his wife, gets rid of her body, convinces her family she ran off. We didn't work it as a homicide for six years. Didn't work it until 1987. No crime scene. Six years later. Not a single piece of physical evidence. 
Tons of unanswered questions. How do you kill her? Where do you kill her? What do you use to kill her? How do you get rid of her body? How do you move her car to make it look like she ran off? Don't have any answers for any of those questions. Yet we were still able to convict him. Because you don't have to have some of the things that I think Dawkins thinks you need in order to make a compelling case. I want to show you how to do that. This is exactly what we do with the Christian worldview. We look at an, an event in the distant past for which there are no living eyewitnesses, no forensic evidence. We make a compelling circumstantial case. That's what I want to teach you to do this morning. Okay? And we're going to do it by showing you this gentleman I showed you earlier. This guy who has been accused, he has feet, believe it or not, they're just dark, dark boots. You can't see him on some projectors. You can see him a little more over here. He does have feet. But the point is, he has just been accused of killing his wife. I need all of you to be on the jury. But in order to be on the jury, you've got to play. You're going to want to play later. Raise your hand right now. Everyone raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, you can't say Jack later. So raise your hand, you can't play. All right, you're all sworn in to the jury. You're going to decide, is this guy guilty? And you have certain pieces of evidence. Well, we could just ask him if he's guilty. If you think if I asked him if he's guilty, do you think he would tell me the truth? I don't think so. It doesn't usually happen that way. There are times when people confess to things. And I always love it when they do, but not always. Especially if it's a case they've gotten away with for 30 years. What would compel them to talk to the truth now? They've lied for 30 years about it. Why would they tell me the truth now? Okay, what if I had a piece of direct evidence? What's direct evidence? Direct evidence is eyewitness testimony. That's it. That's what qualifies as direct evidence. So when people say you don't have any direct evidence, they're simply talking about eyewitness testimony. So if I had somebody who saw him do it, and judges kind of put it this way, if someone comes in from outside and tells you it's raining outside, on the basis of that direct testimony, you can conclude it's raining outside. If on the other hand, somebody comes in and they're soaking wet and they take their, their rain jacket and they brush it off and they close their umbrella, it's raining, and they put it in their, in their umbrella stand, from that indirect evidence, also known as circumstantial evidence, you can conclude that it's raining outside. Well, you might say, well, well but wait a minute. What if, what if it wasn't raining? Maybe they just walked through a sprinkler that was over, you know, shooting over the sidewalk. Really, like, so they knew to, to put on a rain jacket and an umbrella before they walked on the sidewalk. I mean, it's possible, but it's not reasonable. The most reasonable conclusion is they saw it was raining, they put on a raincoat and a rain, and ran an umbrella, and they are now soaking wet. Make sense? That's called indirect evidence. Let's deal with our first form of evidence, though. What if she came in and she testified? She says, you know what? I saw him do it. I was outside of my house, and I was uh, cutting my roses, and I looked up across the street, and through the big plate glass window across the street, there's a young lady who lived in this neighborhood for 20 years. I've known her all of her life. She grew up in this neighborhood. She's got a crazy boyfriend. They've had an up-and-down relationship, and sure enough, I can see him through the plate glass window arguing. And he's screaming at her and screaming at her. And before I know it, he picks up a baseball bat and he starts beating her with the baseball bat until finally she's down. He keeps on swinging on her. Then he runs out and he's, he runs to a car and off he drives. Are you sure it's the boyfriend? Oh, I've known that. That guy grew up in the neighborhood also. He's been in our neighborhood for 20 years too. There's two people who grew up in our neighborhood. I am so sure. He was wearing the shirt that I gave him for Christmas just two years ago. We're all friends. That's pretty compelling. Now, on the basis of that testimony, of that one witness, if you've got a direct evidence case like this, you don't need a lot of pieces of evidence. One good direct evidence, if you find her to be reliable and trustworthy, you'd be done. You wouldn't say, okay, that's, I'm pretty, that's, uh, he's probably our guy. But what if I don't have a piece of direct evidence like this? Let's put a mask on our guy. Now, when she sees him, she says, well, he fits the general description of the boyfriend who she's been dating for years in this terrible relationship, but I couldn't tell you for sure if it's him because he had a mask on his face. Okay. 
Fist of the General Bill, but I can't tell you for sure it was him. How many of you in the jury right now are willing to say this is our guy based on that alone? Raise your hand. Nobody? All right. Let's add one piece. Let's say I go out and I talk to the crazy boyfriend, and the crazy boyfriend tells me an alibi. He explains where he was yesterday at the time of this murder. And he tells that for those two hours I was doing X. And you investigate X and you discover that, no, he's not doing X. He's, he's lying to you about his alibi. He fits the general description and he's lying to you about what he was doing at the time of the murder. That seems a bit odd, don't you think? Why would he lie about that? How many think he's a person of interest right now? Not, not, this is a person of interest. Okay. That's just reasonable. I mean, why, what doesn't mean he's, he's guilty. He's just a person of interest. By the way, people will lie about their alibi and not be guilty. I've had cases where the guy's lying because he's cheating on his wife during those two hours. Honestly. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not killing anybody, but I'm also not doing something I want to be known by anybody else. So we've got to go a little fur further. Okay, how about this? When you do the search warrant, you discover this very suspicious thing in his house. A baseball bat. That's pretty suspicious, don't you think? How many of you have a baseball bat in your house? Oh, really? <laughs> when I do this up in Canada, I did this for a whole week in Canada with apologetics.com. So I'm up there doing this whole presentation for a week, and finally somebody stopped me and said, hey, by the way, you know, it would be unusual for us to have a baseball here in Canada. Nobody plays baseball. So I had to change it, Photoshop it back out into a hockey stick. Yeah. Hockey stick. There you go, because it would be unusual in Canada, right? Okay. So, so, but here, it's pretty common. But what if I told you that on the fat part of the bat, on this end, it's all dented and dinged up? Not like he's been using it to hit baseballs or softballs, but like he's been using it like a club. And so I do a little forensic search to see if there's any blood or any material on that bat, and I discover there is no blood, but there, it has been washed in bleach. How many of you bleach your baseball bats? What purpose could you have to even bleach a baseball bat? What are you trying to accomplish with that? Can you think of a reason why you would bleach your bat outside of an effort to destroy some kind of evidence? He's got a bleach baseball bat, a B.O. Um, um, alibi, and he fits the general description. How many of you right now think this is our guy? It's okay. Don't just do this. I want the whole hand up. All right. We're moving, right? We're moving. And we're moving so far without a single piece of direct evidence. Everything we've got is circumstantial. Everything. His pants, they're caked with mud and dirt. They're dirty. They've been obviously doing something with them. But, but on the knees, when you use luminol, they luminesce. They glow on the knees. And that's usually only going to happen with body fluids or cleaning detergents. So you do a KM test. They're KM negative. There's no blood. But they do luminesce because they've been spot cleaned on the knees with some type of detergent. Meanwhile, the pants are still filthy. So whatever it is he's trying to clean, it's not dirt because he's got dirt everywhere. He's trying to clean something else off the knees. What's he trying to clean? Spot clean pants, B.O. alibi, bleach bat, and it turns out there's no sign of forced entry in the house. No sign of forced entry. Whoever got into this murder either had a way to get in or was let in by the victim. In this case, the only people who have a key to the house are the victim, the victim's mother, and the crazy boyfriend. But also, the crazy boyfriend would have been let in, too. So he's got a way into the house without forced entry. Not everybody does, but he does. He has a key to get in, bleached uh, bat, spot-cleaning pants, B.O. alibi. You see the problem these guys got now? It's looking bad for him, right? Because it's less and less reasonable. possible he's not all involved, but it's less and less reasonable. What if I told you that when we did the interview, 
He's very nervous in the interview, but he's pretty open about their relationship. Yes, they've had an up and down relationship. Yes, it's highly emotional. Yes, uh, he does smack her around repeatedly. He does that in front of her friends. Everyone knows it. He doesn't mean anything by it. This is part of their relationship. He just occasionally beats her. And yesterday, he found out that she's cheating on him. Can you imagine who would cheat on a guy like this? But she found out that he found out that she was cheating on him, and he lost his temper again. And he had a big scene, and yes, he beat her up pretty good, and, and yes, he, told, uh, he said, told her he would kill her that afternoon. And he said that in front of her friends, but he didn't kill her. He denies doing any of this. That beating took place earlier in the day. He denies this whole baseball bat thing altogether. So now you have a kind of a motive for all of this. You have their behavior, pre-behavior, uh, pre all these elements that we fit in. Turns out he's got a pair of boots. Now the witness saw the kind of boots the suspect was wearing were odd in the sense there was a certain kind of leather banding on the side. And when you do research on this, you discover that only one manufacturer even exists that makes boots that way. And only one store in this county sells those boots. And only about 30 pairs have been sold in the last two years. But in the search warrant, he's got one of those 30 pairs. So now you have a one in 30 relationship, a one in three relationship, all this other behavior. And if you'd have gone to the search warrant just a few minutes later, you would have discovered that he'd have been dead because he was writing his suicide note at the time you knocked on the door. He was about to kill himself. And in the note, he says, he did something yesterday that was so horrific, he cannot forgive himself. He lost his temper, shouldn't have done it, can't take it back, it's a world changer. He can do nothing now but kill himself. He doesn't say he killed anybody in the note, just that he did something that horrific. Now, how many of you right now know this is our guy? Raise your hand. What if I told you that when we did the actual search warrant and we talked to the witness, and the witness told us, you know, when he drove away from the house, he got into a car, a car that I recognized from the old days because when I was in college, I had a friend who had this kind of car. What kind of car is it? It was a 1972 ochre, kind of a yellow-colored, mustard-colored Carmen Ghia. Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. How many of you in this room even know what a Volkswagen Carmen Ghia is? Do they have them out here? A few of you. In California, they were huge because it's a milder climate. And, you know, these things last a little longer, but they don't last all that long. As a matter of fact, when you do a DMV search, you discover there are only two operational Carmen Ghias in the entire state. They don't tell you what color the cars are on DMV. But when you open the garage door on Knucklehead, he's got a yellow 1972 Carmen Ghia. We make cases like this by assembling pieces of circumstantial evidence around our suspect, not just eight, 78 pieces of evidence. And finally, it becomes so unreasonable. This guy's either got the worst luck in the world. I mean, think about the odds of this. I'm beating my girlfriend on the day somebody else is going to break in and kill her. Dang, I hate when that happens. Think about how unlucky that is. Or he's just really guilty. And he is the one cause that unifies all the evidence. It's still possible he's not our guy, but it's not reasonable anymore. And we're not talking about possible. Impossible doesn't matter. Reasonable is what matters. And so we're looking at it and saying, hey, the defense is going to say, well, I can explain this some other way. And I can explain this some other way. And I can explain this some other way. By the way, those ways are never the same way. There are always eight other ways. And if I've got 80 pieces of evidence, the defense will do their best to explain it through eight coinciden 80 coincidences, 80 stars that happen to align. Or it just turns out that he is the one unifying cause that explains all of it. It's kind of an Occam's razor. Keep it simple, stupid. 
If one cause can explain all of it, you're probably got the right cause. Right? This is how we make circumstantial cases. We look and we say, what's the most reasonable explanation for all of these evidences in unity as a cumulative case? And that is what is called a circumstantial case. Got it? I have never had anything other than entirely circumstantial cases, just so you know. We do one case every two years. It takes two years to do a cold case. And we've had nothing but circumstantial cases. We haven't lost yet. And we have one coming up that I feel pretty, I don't know about it. We'll see. Yes. Yes. I, I have had a situation I'll talk about later uh, in, in the conference where I was really close on a guy that I thought was probably our guy who I was wrong on. But it, the more you do this, you do this to a certain point. Well, I, I'm very leery to go to trial until I am convinced as the first juror. I've got to be absolutely convinced. But there are times when you go to a trial where you think, hey, this is a really a terrible case. This case in March was a terrible case. No physical evidence, no crime scene. All we had was something we'll talk about in a minute. And we got an adjudication on this. We got the jury in four and a half hours found him guilty, and nobody was happy. His family was not happy. They don't believe it, of course. They love their son. The victim's family didn't believe it. They love their son-in-law. Yeah, they treat him like a son. They want to believe their own daughter is dead. They would rather believe she ran off than have her, their son-in-law, who they love, had killed her 30 years ago. I can't believe it. Keith Morrison and, and Dateline, when we're sitting doing the interview, come on, Jim, this is the worst case we've done so far. Yeah, it is. But how do you know it's her? I know it's her. You don't assemble these kinds of cases. There's no way. He's either the, it, it, again, it's all about Occam's razor. A month later, we're at sentencing. And because he's worried about his parole, he decided to confess to all of it and give us the body. So we were right. And we were right with all kinds of unanswered questions in a case that was never anywhere near as good as this eight-piece case. So you can come to the truth with unanswered questions. Of course, the world around us wants to say, you've got too many unanswered questions about Christianity, you can't believe it because you have unanswered questions. Well, really? Then you can't convince anybody of anything because every case is like this. Now, let's take a look at this case, and we'll turn a corner. Remember, circumstantial evidence is instructed to jurors. They are instructed that circumstantial evidence is not to be treated as anything less powerful, anything less meritorious, anything less valuable in your considerations. Do not go back in the jury room and let anyone say, well, that's just circumstantial, though. There is no such thing as just circumstantial. There's circumstantial, there's direct, and not, neither one of them is just. They're the same. They're to be given the exact same weight. That's a jury instruction. So I want us to, to help convince the world around us this is how you make any kind of case including our case. Now, it turns out that there are direct witnesses in the Christian worldview, but we have to find out, are these witnesses reliable? Another skill set I've got to teach you this morning. When you look at witnesses to determine whether or not they're reliable, direct testimony. You have four large categories that come out of 14 questions that California allows jurors to think about when listening to witnesses on the stand. The 14 questions come, come down to these four issues, and these four issues really come down to these four words to make it easy. The question is, was the witness really there? Is the witness somehow verifiable or corroborated? Is the witness honest? Has the witness been honest over time? And finally, is there a bias that would cause them to lie to you? We're going to look at these four areas, not on a regular, we're going to look at the witnesses that we call the disciples, the gospel authors. 
How do we know the gospel authors are telling us the truth or if they're lying? Can they be trusted? Are they reliable? If all I did as a non-believer was simply take the template I use on regular witnesses and apply it to the gospel authors, would they pass? That's the question. The first question is, are they present? Here's that case I was telling you about from 1972 when my dad had an uh, unsolved case. He was the third chair on this case. These first two detectives were in the one and two position. This is the suspect for this case. He murdered the 10-year-old girl on Thanksgiving Day 1972. We're now 14 months, or is he uh, 15, let's see, 16 months later. We're walking over the suspect to the courtroom and this guy had confessed to the entire murder in really horrific graphic detail. And um, it's about a thousand pages of transcript that I had to go through to see what he had to say. Just a horrific confession. And I killed her and dropped her body a couple of cities away. All of it's a lie. All of it's a lie. He wasn't even there. He wasn't even present. We eliminated him from uh, blood evidence back in uh, about two weeks before the trial was going to start. So we didn't have DNA back then. We had some blood evidence that we could eliminate him with. He's not our guy. He wasn't even there. He's got some issues, for sure. He loved the attention these two people were giving him. For two months, they were his best friends. And he had some issues. But if you're not there, you can't be the suspect. And guess what? If you're not there, you can't be a witness either. And people will lie to you and tell you they're someplace because they like the uh, chance they're going to get interviewed on Dateline or whatever it may be on a big case. They will lie to you. Whether they're there or not is the first issue you have to figure out. And so we have to ask the same question of the authors of Scripture. We have an event, the ministry of Jesus in 30 to 33 AD, and then we have the first courtroom in which a group of Christians is going to come together and say, okay, these are the eyewitness accounts you can trust. You know that thing from Thomas? That's no good. Get rid of that. That thing from Philip, the uh, Gospel of Philip, that's no good. Gospel of Judas, that's it's late. These are the only eyewitness accounts you can trust. This is going to happen at a church council. It's not the council of Nicaea. That's about the deity of Christ. It's the council of Laodicea. But look at how late it occurs in history. At 363, 330 years pass between the event and the trial. You want to call it a trial. See the problem? Where were the written accounts written? If they're written at this time in the timeline, toward the end, you shouldn't trust them. If they're written down here, they can't have not have been written by eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses were all dead by that time. If the eyewitness accounts are late, they're not eyewitness accounts. Got it? The early dating of the Gospels is critical if you're going to consider them as eyewitness accounts. And there are lots of people who are out there writing lots of books to argue that you should not trust the reliability of Scripture, especially this young man here, Bart Ehrman. I'll be in North Carolina on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at four colleges, four universities doing big university talks on this talk. But this is his home turf because he is the, uh, a scholar at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he is one of the, probably the best-known biblical scholar in the North American continent today. I'm not saying he's the best scholar. I'm saying he's the best known. Nobody has written as many academic volumes and popular volumes. These books are meant for lay people. And he's writing about textual criticism. Who in the world would buy that kind of a book? He sells millions because he's, he's an effective writer. He writes a quick book and it makes a case. And he's a biblical scholar. He's one of the foremost biblical scholars doing the work today. Most people have great respect for his work. 
not this work necessarily, but for his, his for certainly his academic chops. This guy was a Christian, raised in the Christian church, through all through youth group. He went to uh, Moody Bible Institute. He went to Wheaton College, all Christian institutions. Went to Princeton Theological um, uh, Seminary, or he studied underneath, underneath one of the best biblical scholars of the last century, Bruce Metzger, and wrote a book with Bruce Metzger. And he's not a Christian. He calls himself an agnostic, but really, uh, that, that to me is, I think, a bit of a stretch. I, I, I think probably more than anything else, he's a non-believer, period. He does not believe you can trust these documents. And he's writing books against the case that people accept and telling us basically that Christianity you believe today is not the one that was really there in the first century. It's just the one that emerged after all the fights. We've lost all the other versions of Christianity, lost a bunch of scripture. What you do know about Jesus you can't trust because it's been misquoted and changed over the years. And we don't know how many times it's been changed over the years. And you can't even trust that the authors who are on the books themselves are the real authors of these books. They're all forged. This is a biblical scholar, a respected biblical scholar who's writing these kind of books. You don't think that if, if we don't cover these issues with our young people now, before they get to the university, somebody will. None of this stuff is, is all that powerful. But if you don't understand how to rebut it, what the truth is, it's awfully hard to hear it for the first time when you're 19 and looking for a reason to go sleep with your girlfriend. I mean, to be honest, that's what drives us, right? We all want to smoke dope and skip rope and do all the stuff we do in, in college. And we're just looking for somebody to give us the liberty to do it. This isn't true. Enjoy yourself. Stop feeling guilty. So we have to address these issues. Now, if on the other hand, these gospel writers are actually writing early in history, well, then they at least pass the first test. It doesn't mean they're telling us the truth, but at least we know they're lying very early. <laughs> okay? So let's take a look at this one issue. How do we know when they wrote the books? I think there's a very solid circumstantial case. We've already talked about circumstantial cases, so it should come to you pretty easy now. So for example, all you Sunday school graduates, tell me what book of the Bible includes the destruction of the temple. We know that Ma Matthew 23, Matthew's gonna say that Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, but what book of the Bible actually describes the destruction? Because you know that destruction occurred in history right around 70 AD, pretty early. So tell me which Bible volume describes the destruction of the temple? Well, which book of the Bible describes the, the history after Jesus during the life of the apostles, at least? Acts. Is it in Acts? Is it in the book of Acts, the destruction of the temple? No. It's missing. And in fact, the entire siege of Jerusalem, which was no small thing, blockaded the city, starve out all the inhabitants, eventually knock the walls down and sack the temple. Three years. Two or three years prior to this, they had this kind of activity. Nothing is mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts. Who are the three major players in the book of Acts? Throw it out there. Paul, Peter. Who's the leader of the church in Acts 15? James, the brother of Jesus. So we have these major players in the book of Acts. Well, they all died in the first uh, century. Is the death of Paul mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts? We know he dies right around 64 to 67. No, he's alive in the end of the book of Acts. Why not mention his death? What about Peter's death about the same time? No mention of it in the book of Acts. What about James' death? James is going to die even earlier, right around 61. Not mentioned in the book of Acts. Well, why not? Luke mentions Stephen's death. He's a minor player. He mentions James, the brother of John's death, around 44 AD. He's a minor player. Why mention these minor players but leave out the three most important people in the entire book of Acts? The people who you could say, you know, died a martyr. You could say all kinds of things. But why not say anything about these deaths? 
What could explain the missing elements from the book of Acts? What could explain it? Yeah, hasn't been written. Hasn't been happened yet. It's been written before these events actually occurred. So I would just place the book of Acts one year prior to the first missing event. That's a conservative placement. I'm only going one year prior. Now we know that Paul, I mean that Luke rather, writes two volumes. He writes the book of Acts, and what else does he write? Gospel of Luke. Which one comes first? Luke. So we have to put Luke's volume in front of Acts. But when? I'm going to put it pretty early. I don't think it's that early. But, I mean, I think it's, people, people could argue it's early. But why do I place it there? There's other internal evidence. You'll see that Paul, when right, well, first of all, do you realize that this is the evidence for this, that he's telling us in the first chapter of Acts that he wrote two volumes, and in the prior book, he wrote about Jesus. So that's the Gospel of Luke. But Paul does something interesting. When I was a skeptic, this really struck me as fascinating. I always wondered, what did the first Christians think was Scripture? I mean, early what was Paul using as scripture? Well, he's going to tell us right here in 1 Timothy. Now, to be fair, um, Bart Ehrman does not consider 1 Timothy a Pauline book. He thinks it's a forgery. But that's another issue we can come back to later. But let's just go on for that for the sake of argument. 1 Timothy, Paul, writing around 63 to 64 AD, describes the scripture he's using. And he says, for the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Two quotes from scripture. The first one is from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. But the second one is not from the Old Testament. It's word for word from the New Testament. It's from the Gospel of Luke, Luke 10. So he's quoting an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse. And apparently he's got access to this information early enough so that his reader, uh, who's Timothy, will recognize it as Scripture. I think that Luke's volume is available early to Paul because Paul's already quoting from it in 63 A.D., now, there's another book that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church called 1 Corinthians, and Bart Ehrman does accept this book as Pauline. It's a much earlier book, though. It's written as early as 53. And in this book, Paul's going to describe the Lord's Supper, and he talks about how Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. And when I first read that, right away that stuck out to me because I read all the Gospels by this time. And as I was reading the Gospels, I knew that every Gospel had a story of the Lord's Supper, but only one Gospel says that Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. Only one. Which one? Luke. He's quoting Luke again. So here we have Paul quoting Luke as early as 53 AD. Clearly the Gospel of Luke is out there somehow in some form that Paul has access to it, and when he quotes it back to the Corinthians, they don't flinch because they recognize it as Scripture also. So the early circulation of Luke, I think, is pretty reasonable given the internal evidence from Paul. Now, we also know, if you look at uh, Luke, this is one of the things I did early on. Remember, I talked about how I tried to use detective skills to kind of figure this stuff out. And one of the things I found early was that in the first century, Papias, who's a bishop in the first century, he describes what Mark is doing in the Gospel of Mark. And he says in the first century that Mark is scribing for the apostle Peter. He is writing down the teaching that Peter did while in Rome when he was teaching about his life with Jesus. And that Mark was being careful to get the accuracy right of each story, but was not careful in recording the order. Careful about accuracy, 
not careful about order. This is Papias' statement in the first century. So I thought, well, you can test that. So I did a, a thing called forensic statement analysis. Forensic statement analysis is basically this. If you do a murder and the next day I get you in custody, I'll give you a piece of paper. One side only, 24 lines and an ink pen. Write down everything you did for me from the time you got up in the morning to the time you went to bed. Any changes you make, you've got to scratch out and start over again. Then I can look at this thing and I can start to analyze it for use of pronouns, for use of tense, for contraction of time or expansion of time. I can usually tell if the person's lying to me and what time of day I should be focused on from the forensic statement analysis. Then I'll do an interview and see if this is, if this is true. So you get a chance to kind of test what you just learned. Did the same thing on the Gospel of, P, of uh, Paul, uh, of Mark, looking to see if Peter's fingerprints were in Mark's gospel in a way that weren't in the other gospels. Is there anything unique about Mark's gospel that verifies what Papias said? I did a whole chapter on it. There's a ton of stuff in there that's really kind of cool. Uh, and just as you discover it forensically. But what was interesting was when I got to Luke and read his first verse of the gospel of Luke, look at what he says to Theophilus. He doesn't claim to be an eyewitness. Luke says he's a detective who's carefully investigating by talking to the eyewitnesses. And he says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Do you catch it, what he just said? Did you just catch that? I caught it right away when I read it. He says, what kind of account is he writing? What does he say? An orderly, well, duh, you're writing history, you're writing out your investigation. I typically don't write my, my, uh, my uh, you know, report and, and jumble it all up and take it out of order. I write down what happened, right? I don't say, you guess what happened in the right order. I'll just give you the details. He's saying his account is orderly. Well, no kidding. Why would he have to say that? Because he knows there's an account out there that precedes him. As a matter of fact, is one of his key eyewitnesses because more than anyone else, Luke quotes Mark more than anybody. Word for word in many places. But he's telling Theophilus, unlike Mark's account, my account is orderly. So I think there's good reason to believe that Mark's account precedes Luke, and that puts his account within 12 to 15 years of the actual events. And if that's the case, we have somebody who's writing about Jesus at a time when people who would know better can say, bull, it never happened that way. I was there, none of that's true. The same way Paul, when writing in 1 Corinthians 15, says, if you don't believe me, there are still 500 people out there who have seen the risen Christ, you can go ask them. That's a pretty gutsy thing to say if you're just making that stuff up. That either has to be a late insertion, and by the way, it's available in every early version of Paul's text, or it's just a gutsy play on Paul's part, thinking no one's ever going to check me out on this. It's one of those two. I think this makes sense, and for me, the issue of early dating was resolved. But I had two doubts as a skeptic. One, either it was not early enough to have been true because it includes all those miracles, or two, it got changed over the years because you can't trust it, and all the miracles are late insertions. That's what would be my second play. But first, the second, uh, we talked about are they present or not. What about this issue of verification? How would we ever corroborate this? You know, sometimes when you're corroborating cases, if a witness tells you something, you can corroborate it with fingerprint evidence. You can corroborate it with ballistic evidence. There's lots of ways to corroborate what witnesses say. Sometimes you just corroborate with some other witness. But how do we do it? You know, one quick thing about corroboration, evidence, corroborative evidence. Let's say I have a scenario and a robbery takes place, and you get robbed while you're working at a bank. And here's the counter. And the witness says that the robber came up and took his gun and he pointed it right at the, sus at the victim and said, give me all your money. 
while he was leading up here, give me all your money. And then he left. What kind of corroborative evidence could I get from that statement that might tell me if that's true or not? What? Yeah, he leaned on the counter. If I happen to find a palm print in that direction, about where she said it happened, and it's going the right direction, and it comes back to my suspect, that would corroborate her statement. But would it tell you anything about whether he had a gun? No. Would it tell you anything about what he said? No. All corroborative evidence gives you a small fraction of the event from which you infer to the larger account. Did you hear what I just said? All corroborative evidence gives you a small piece from which you infer, that's the case for, you never get a videotape. Maybe you will these days. But usually you didn't used to when I, was, I started. You would get a, a, a fingerprint, a piece of DNA. But you'd have to infer to the larger account. Why do I say that? Because I think we have good evidence to corroborate the accounts, but it's touch point evidence, just like the fingerprint. And it cannot be anything more. I shouldn't expect it to be anything more because all corroborative evidence is only a fraction. So what kinds of evidence do we have? Well, we have the evidence of archaeology. You realize that all of these facts were doubted in the 20th century by skeptics who did not believe Luke was writing accurately. They thought Luke was making up the book of Acts because they had no outside corroboration for any of these things. No outside corroboration that Quirinius was actually available that early. Or no uh, outside information for Pontius Pilate. This was at a time when there was no external information to corroborate Luke. So they doubted Luke. Now, of course, since we've been doing a lot of archaeological work in the last hundred years, we've discovered all of these things that corroborate everything that Luke said. I could do this probably for four or five slides. But there's no point in doing that. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that we have a great body of biblical corroboration in archaeology. Can we corroborate every single element of the, of the Gospels? <laughs> no. Of course not. You shouldn't expect that. This kind of evidence is touchpoint evidence. Let me ask you a question. My brothers and sisters who are Mormons, is there a single archaeological find in the North American continent that mentions a, a, a single foundation of any city from the Book of Mormon? Remember, a thousand years of, of Mormon history on this continent described in the Book of Mormon. Battles, millions of combatants, dozens of cities, hundreds of names of Mormon characters, not a single inscription of a single Mormon name, not a single coin ever discovered. You could kick the sand in, in, in Israel and find ancient coins without hardly any work at all. You can't find a single coin from the Book of Mormon. There is not a single piece of evidence they could trot out in a slide like this. And that's the difference. Now, we don't have complete, you, don't, you shouldn't expect complete. Remember, archaeology is a, a discipline of fractions. We only have a fraction of the actual sites identified. Only a fraction have been cataloged. Only a fraction of those have been dug. Only a fraction of those have been actually uh, examined. And only a fraction of those are even biblical. It's a law of fractions. But we have a lot, considering the antiquity of the claim. But how about some other way? What if I had a witness who could come in and tell me something similar about Jesus who wasn't in the Bible? Same bank robber. Comes in and does the bank robbery. I get him in custody. I say, dude, I know you were in that bank. I wasn't in that bank. I got a videotape of you in the bank. I don't really have that, but I tell him I have that, right? He says, okay, I was in the bank. Well, you were doing a bank robbery. I wasn't doing a bank robbery. I saw you on the tape go over and write the demand letter on the counter next to the teller. No, I was writing a deposit slip. Oh, really? Then you took that deposit slip over and you yelled at her and gave it to her. No, I was just frustrated because I forgot my ID outside and I went outside. I couldn't have my ID with me. 
Now, has he admitted to doing a bank robbery? No. But do you think I'll use those statements in court against him? Yeah. Because he's backed into a couple of key facts that are important. He's in the bank at the time of a bank robbery, writing something at the very counter where witnesses says he wrote his demand note, and then going over and confronting the teller that witnesses say was robbed. He's given us a lot of stuff reluctantly. Reluctant admissions are used in court all the time. Are there any ancient reluctant admissions about Jesus? Yeah, a bunch. Let's take a look at a few of them. First century, we're going to stay in the first century and look at only pagan sources, not Jewish sources, not Christian sources. When I say pagan, I don't mean bad or vile. I simply mean non-Christian. So here we go. Take a look at one here from Thallus, who in 52 AD wrote about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, according to Julius Africanus, he wrote something hostile, that Thallus said that that darkness that occurred at the uh, crucifixion was really not divine. It wasn't supernatural. It was just a, an eclipse of the sun. Well, a phallus who's not a believer reluctantly admits to the darkness, doesn't he? He reluctantly admits to the life and crucifixion of Jesus. Because in order to explain the darkness as an uh, eclipse of the sun, he has to back into those three facts. Right? The same way the robber says, I was just there making a deposit. There's more. Tacitus historian who writes about the destruction of Rome says that consequently to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular, kind of like Los Angeles or Chicago. But the point is, you know, he's talking about something and he's backing into several facts. In order to make this claim, not as a Christian, he has to back into there's someone called Christ, who was Jesus the Christ, and lived in Judea, was crucified under Pontius Pilate and had followers. But also, I didn't even include this detail. Look at what he says here. They squelched for the moment a most mischievous superstition. He doesn't say what that superstition is. But what do you think he's talking about? The resurrection. I didn't put that on the list. I mean, that's almost going too far, right? But I mean, I think he's admitting that there's a, a story out there about a resurrection. This is very early in history. Mar Bar Saraparam, who was a, a Syrian philosopher, who was writing to his son about the fate of several philosophers of antiquity, writes this. It includes uh, Socrates. He includes um, uh, Pythagoras, and then he includes, or the Jews, by murdering their wise king. After that, their kingdom was abolished, about 70 AD. And uh, God rightly avenged these men. The wise king lived on in the teachings he enacted. I think we have a description here of Jesus as the wise king, and that there, the blame is being placed on the Jews, which makes sense given the, the Gospels. And Phlegon here is being quoted by Origen, does two interesting quotes. He says that Jesus had a knowledge of future events, and also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions, and that Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. So you're going to have to back in reluctantly to a lot of facts about Jesus if you just stay in the first century. Now, you can go beyond the first century and get more, but I'm just trying to say that if I'm going to make these claims early, I have to make them around people who would know better. That's why I think they're powerful. And here I've got claims about Jesus being made by non-Christians early enough to be confronted by people who 
could write something different because they knew better. There is no something different out there. This is it. This reluctant admission, I would know all of this about Jesus if I lost every single piece of Christian literature, including the Gospels, including all the church fathers. You'd still be stuck with that version of Jesus. Not bad. I think it's pretty decent corroborative evidence. It's not everything, but I wouldn't expect everything. So we talked about verification. Let's just move on to accuracy. How do we know the story hasn't changed? Here's our guy from 1981. He said one thing as a kid, one thing as he got older. Until finally he had so many stories. He said one story in 1981, one story in 1987, one story in 1996, 2002, 2010, and finally he had five stories lined up, none of which were the same. Why? Because he didn't have a, a recollection he could revisit in his mind's eye. There was no recollection. He had lied about all of it. And he wasn't even asked to repeat his lie for six years. He should have written it down. But he didn't. So six years later, he's got a major change. And then he wasn't asked again for another 10 years, nine years. And he had another major revision. And he kept on changing his story over time. And if you're going to change your story over time, you're probably lying because you're not going back to your mind's eye for this. Now, I expect some things to fade. So the Mona Lisa would fade over time. And I had little, I could see her nose or maybe her ear, but I can't get the whole picture because it's fading over time like your memory. But when the Mona Lisa ends up like the Abraham Lincoln, I got a problem, right? And that's exactly how I illustrated it on the screen for the jury. That's exactly what happened here. Now, what do you do when you think that the Gospels have been altered? I think, you know, this is crazy. You've got four Gospels, they can't agree on anything. The gospel writers never seem to agree on anything. How many, how many uh, women run to the tomb? How many women? How many? Two? Three? Depends on the gospel. How many angels are at the tomb when they get there? One? Two? Depends on the gospel. What is written over Jesus' cross? Four Gospels, none can agree. It's like five words. Really, you can't agree on those five words. Really? Why should you trust any of this stuff when they don't agree with each other? Have you ever been challenged that way? I think a lot of young people are challenged with that. That never challenged me as an investigator coming to the case for the first time. I never, had, I never even blinked on that stuff because that is always the case. <laughs> I have never worked a case where any two witnesses agreed on anything. Well, they agree on some things, but I mean, they're not in total agreement, ever, ever. I can give you an example of this. I had a case several years ago where I had a murder case in our city. I'm about 50 minutes from, from the, uh, the case at home. Got to put a suit on, got to get out there. About an hour goes by before I get there, and it's raining. So the officers who are there want to do a favor for the people who are witnesses. They put them in the back of a police unit, and they sat there together unsupervised for an hour before I got there. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing, right? Why is that a bad thing? Yeah, they're talking to each other for an hour before I got there. And I get them out of the car, and I've got like three or four of the same story repeated three or four times. What, what is the point? And it ruined it. I, he had a gun in his belt. Why don't I think it's a big belt buckle? I've got a cowboy belt buckle. Didn't you see? I saw it. Well, maybe you're right. So sometimes it's inadvertent. They'll just give in to somebody else's story if you're around that story long enough. I don't want them to have the same story. I want to get them out, keep them separated. I, now when I, when I get called out, I always say, hey, do you have witnesses? Yeah. Are they separated? Keep them separated until we get there. 
Because we want that messiness. We want that apparent contradiction between their accounts. We want to work out the details later. Because in the end, what appears to be a contradiction won't be. But that's our job as detectives to figure out how it puzzles together. And it's going to look fuzzy and dirty and messy and contradictory when you first get there. But in the end, we'll work it out. Don't try to remove that up front. And that's what you see in the Gospels. It should never bother you when you see eyewitness accounts that don't match because they never, ever, ever do. It does not mean that anyone's lying. It's usually a matter of perspective. Well, why wouldn't you notice the gun? Well, it depends on where she was in the room, what her fears were. The guy who did mention the gun could not describe anything else because he's at the end of a barrel. When you're at the end of the barrel, if I ask you what his T-shirt said, you're like, I don't know. Was he wearing a T-shirt? I don't think he was wearing a T-shirt. But I can tell you there's a big round thing in my face. So it's all about perspective and what you're focused on at the time. What is impressing you based on your personal history? Those things are highlighted by witnesses. They're very different. Don't let it bother you. It should never bother you. In fact, it's a good thing. And if you saw that they all agreed, you would be suspicious. If we had four Gospels that were word for word the same Gospel, you would say it's a lie because you'd think they colluded. So now let's go back to our Gospels. Life of Jesus. Here's the event, the kind of the courtroom. How do we know what occurred in this time frame? How do we know that John wrote something that wasn't changed and added to, and now he's walking on water, and now he's raising people from the dead, and now he's rising from the dead, but the first version of Jesus was nothing like that. He was just a simple teaching pastor, or rabbi. Just a simple teacher in the first century, and all of a sudden, four centuries later, he's God. Same kind of thing happens at crime scenes when you go to court 30 years later. How do I know that this piece of evidence, this casing I put right here, how do I know that casing was actually in the crime scene? How do I know that that casing wasn't put there later? Now, I've got it in my trial today, but for all I know, some evil detective dropped it in the property box. It wasn't even part of the crime scene. But that blood was never part of that scene like O.J. It got transported there by the evil detective who planted it at the scene. How do I know if it was really there to begin with? How do I know if it wasn't given then later to somebody else who unsuspectingly worked it as though it was there and then gave it to another detective who brought it into trial? And now I have a casing in my trial that shouldn't be there at all because it was planted late. Couldn't something similar have happened with the Gospel of John, let's say? He writes a gospel, a very simple gospel, nothing like the thing we've got today. But over the years, it gets brought into the council for verification after it's been changed hundreds of times by liars who are making copies and making changes year after year until you can't trust any of it. This is, by the way, what Bart would argue um, in some of his writings. Can't trust what's there because we don't know what's been added late. And there are so many changes in Scripture, you can't trust any of it. And then, of course, the last person who gets it has no idea how many changes are involved, so he trots it into the council, and here you go, I, said, I can trust this. You've got some lie. Can't trust. Here's how you make sure this doesn't happen in a court case. You go back to the crime scene and you ask yourself a question. Is there anybody at the crime scene who took a picture of the casing or who saw it and wrote a report immediately? I need a picture of the casing at the crime scene. A Polaroid. I talk about this all the time. Do you guys know what Polaroids are? Everyone thinks they know what Polaroids are. Raise your hand if you know what a Polaroid is. Raise your hand. Okay. Let's tell me. You raise your hand if you know this kind of Polaroid. Ready? Click. You know that one. How about this one? Click. <laughs> oh, yeah. The sun is decreased. How about this one? Click. That's a little bit older. How about this one? Click. 
That's really old. Yeah, remember that? Okay. So that was the really old. I got all of them in my cases. But I'm looking for something like that, a Polaroid that someone took to show me if it was really there. Then when he gives it to the next guy, maybe he takes an investigative Polaroid, brings it to the crime lab where they take the first 35 millimeter, now it would be digital. And they write reports. Every one of these people writes a report so that every nick and scratch and ding and retractor mark, everything you see on that casing was there from the beginning. It's been documented all along. And then finally, when it gets to the courtroom, it's been brought in by somebody who can authenticate it through what's called the chain of custody. Got it? Something similar, I think, could be looked at in terms of the Gospels. Is there a chain of custody? So I know for sure that what I have today is what I started off with. Yes, let's take a look at John. So John comes in, he takes the first picture of Jesus. It's a Polaroid we call the Gospel of John. There it is. He now has another officer he's going to give Jesus to. He's going to give the Gospel of John to two or three of his students. I say two or three because we only have evidence from two of them, but he had three students, Papias, Ignatius, and Polycarp. They are the direct students of John. Whatever picture John had of Jesus, he gave this picture to his students, who, lucky for us, took another picture of Jesus because they wrote their own letters because they became leaders in the church. And Ignatius has got seven letters to the local church we can examine to see how does he describe Jesus based on what he was told from John. Is he the same Jesus we know today, or is he a simpler Jesus? It turns out that Ignatius is not only going to quote from John's gospel, but from all the gospels. He's going to allude to many of the books of Paul, you can see here, uh, 7 to 16, depending on how you take his quotes, because there's some repetition in Paul's documents. Saying, I wish we had Papias, we don't have any Papias' documents, they are all lost, but we do have one letter that survives from Polycarp written to the Philippian church. So we've got a picture of Jesus one generation after the first officer. And they had a student also named Irenaeus who takes a picture of Jesus based on what he was taught from the second officers in the chain of custody. He also wrote a heck of a lot. As a matter of fact, he already early in history, 185 or so, has identified 24 of the documents in the New Testament that he says are reliable and he uses them in his own teaching. So don't let anyone tell you that the Gospels come together at some church council that the canon of Scripture is decided over here. It's already being used very early by the first disciples, and they simply have, uh, are, are affirming it here. They're recognizing it here. But it's already in use over here. Make sense? And then you have a student of Irenaeus named Hippolytus, the next student who pretty much repeats a lot of what Irenaeus says. Unfortunately, Hippolytus got in some trouble with Rome, and he was sentenced to the mines. He dies in the mines. I can't find a student of Hippolytus. But if you were to do this over and over again with other um, writers like Paul, who mentions both Linus and Clement in his letters, well, Clement writes a letter called First Clement in which he's going to tell you the picture he got from Paul. Then you trace all this through the uh, Roman bishops all the way to Justin Martyr and Tatian, but it stops short. Uh, you have Peter, though, who through Mark and the North African bishops in Pontanaeus at the school of, uh, of uh, uh, Athanasius school uh, in North Africa, all the way through to Eusebius, you can get pictures of Jesus all the way through history. Here's an important thing. Is he changing? Is Jesus becoming more miraculous over time? If you lost the work of those authors and all you had was the work of these authors, you'd still be stuck with the Jesus that Bart Ehrman hates, the one who was born of a virgin, claimed to be God, worked miracles, rose from the dead. You're not going to get away from that Jesus. That's the earliest Jesus on record. It's repeated historically over and over and over again. It's not a late creation. It's not a legend that grew over time. 
I wanted to show you this because I did do a whole talk on this. We're going to do one slide on it right here. But I want to help you. Young people sometimes don't realize how many alterations and small changes there are in the Bible. What I mean is that the Bible we have in our hands today is drawn from a number of texts. I don't care which version of the Bible you're using. It's drawn from texts that precede it. And those texts don't always agree. And we have ancient documents that we trust, and depending on which version of the Bible you, you trust, all versions are not the original. They are derived from texts that precede it. Make sense? And some are going to have more variations than others. And so someone like Bart Ehrman is going to say, you can't trust your Bible because there are more variations in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Does that sound powerful to your students? There are over 4,000 changes in the Book of Mormon since the 1830 aversion that came from Joseph. And that is powerful to me because there's only one original document for the Book of Mormon, the 1830 manuscript. So to have, make changes afterward is kind of hard to understand why you would change it, right? You only had one version. But it's easy to understand how if I've got hundreds and hundreds of versions of the text, they might disagree with each other in certain small words. And your Bible is honest about it. If this, this is an ESV, I think, or an NASB, you see a, foot, a, a little A there next to that word. And then in the margin, you can see what some manuscripts, it simply says some manuscripts have a different word. Now they've decided that this is the word that should be there. But they're honest about telling you that there are places where other earlier, usually it's a battle between the majority text, if I've got, say, 100 texts, and 99 say the same thing. The majority say one thing. But there's one text that predates all of those texts, the earliest text. It says something different. You're always trying to battle back and forth between the earliest text and the majority text, right? Which one should I trust? You'll see it here again. All is every in some text. These are like deal killers, right? I mean, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. But the point is, they are there. Young people need to know how insignificant these are because they make it sound like they're incredibly significant because of the number of variations. Yes? And what some of the variations, just uh, modified name spelling? Yes, variations are typically either, a mis either, in they're either inadvertent or advertent. Some are, are not just misspellings. Some are insertions that cannot be attributed to a misspelling. Some are larger. But the point is, how do we know what really belongs? How do we know what was there to begin with? How do we know what was in, was in John's manuscript, even though we have one now that's a compilation of manuscripts? I want to illustrate it for you so you can see why. It doesn't matter how many variations you have when you have lots of copies. Here's what I mean. Let's say, I told you... Uh, uh, well, this is, this is how many manuscripts we actually have to begin with. In the Bible, we have 24,000 plus manuscripts, okay? 24,000 plus manuscripts, both fragments and complete manuscripts that date back within uh, just a few years of the event. And then for the Iliad, for example, you only have 1,900. But more powerfully, I, just, I was on Unbelievable. It's a radio show in the UK, right? So I'm on Unbelievable, and there are challenges about... I wish I had, I had a terrible phone connection. I could not even hear the challenger's question, but I did my best. But it turns out his challenge was really based on the writings of Josephus do not match Luke, and he wanted to trust Josephus rather than Luke. Josephus is a first-century Jewish historian. Well, we've got 24,000 copies of the, of the manuscript, uh, fragments or complete. Not all of them are complete. Some are fragments. And there's only 120 of Josephus. 
The first copy of Josephus we have is in the 11th century. We don't even know how much it changed from the first 1100 century, uh, years. And we don't have, only have 35 before the 13th century. This is not a very well-attested document. Why does that matter? I'll give you an illustration. My son, who's in med school, you know what the first year of med school is? Do you know why there are no doctors being produced by med schools who are willing to work in rural areas as primary care physicians? you know why there aren't any? Because nobody wants to encounter the debt, and they can't pay it back in that setting. People are getting into specialties like crazy because they have to pay back their debt. So check this out. My son, first year in med school, what do you think it cost to go to med school? He had to take loans. I can't help him. $85,000 for year one. This is why you have no primary care doctors. If you had to take that kind of a loan, I hope, what parent can pay that? I can't pay it, right? So this is his debt. He's constantly short of cash. So let's say I texted him, and I said, I'll meet you next Wednesday at 4 o'clock at Starbucks on Main. I'll give you $5,000 just to help you out. Here's my text. Now, unfortunately, I'm on an iPhone like everybody else, although I don't have that sissy white iPhone anymore. I have this black masculine iPhone. Thank you. Thank you. you know what I'm talking about. So I do text him with this, though, and I've got an error. It doesn't say 5000 It doesn't say Starbucks. He doesn't understand what I'm talking about. So I text him a second time. I've corrected some of the errors, but I've unfortunately got another error. Next weakness instead of next Wednesday. I'm a perfectionist, so I text him again. Third text, another error. I've called him a nerd. <laughs> I'm now a little upset with my autocomplete, so I text again. And I text again. Now, I'm getting most of it right. I mean, you can see that four out of five times I have the right street, the right time, the right money, the right location. But I do have some errors in there. There is not one inerrant text. They all have errors. Where do you think my son David's going to be next Wednesday at 4 o'clock? Starbucks on Main. Why is he going to be there? Five grand is waiting for him. He's not stupid. He can return to my original intent with just five copies. Why? Because he has five copies to compare to one another. And he can figure out where the errors are. He can figure out where the little differences are. And he can remove them. Now, if I was to be really anal retentive about this, right? I just, five was not enough, and I really wanted to make a point. I could text this guy until I'm dead. You think he would eventually tell me to stop? Uh, yeah. Because enough already. I can compare. I know what you're trying to tell me. And this is the delightful dilemma we have, this, this, these riches that Dan Wallace, as a biblical scholar, says we have of the original manuscripts. We have so many manuscripts to compare. So if you want to write down the ones that are important, I'll give them to you right here. Here they are. Write these down. These are the big ones. <laughs> See the problem? We have this great, these riches of manuscripts that we can compare. And because the number of manuscripts you compare is far more important than the number of variations, we are able to rule out all the variations. The reason why a Bart Ehrman can say, hey, there's a problem over here is because he knows how to remove it. Duh. The very technique he's using to identify the problem is how we can have confidence in what we have already removed. Make sense? So don't let that bother you. Now we're going to end with this. We talked about are they present, are they verified, are they accurate? Now finally we're going to talk about are they biased? Why should you trust these stupid Christians to begin with? They're biased. They're Christians, after all. Okay. Well, bias, I think, really comes down to, to, to motive. Why would they lie? What's the bias that would cause them to lie? What's in it for them to lie? That's really the question, right? 
So what's the only motive they could have? Well, it turns out when it comes to motive, it's easy. Because there are only three motives for anything. Only three motives for any murder, any theft, any sin you've ever done. Anytime you've done something you shouldn't have done, it was motivated in one of these three areas or some subset. That makes it easy. That means when you come to a crime scene and you see a dead body, you say to yourself, who could benefit in one of those three areas? And that's where you start looking for a suspect. It's not like there's an unlimited number of motives. There are only three. And so you can rule out your suspects pretty quickly based on do they have one of these three? What are the three? Do you know? What? Financial gain. gain. What would you say? Yes, but how are they benefiting? One way is through financial gains. Let's get down on the wall right now. Lots of times people do things they shouldn't do because they are financially motivated. That's why I got to tell you, I hate the fact, as an atheist, I hated it when Christians were selling stuff. Just hated it. And now I'm a Christian who's selling something. (laughs) Right? That's not good. I suspect anyone who's got a financial gain in it. Is that what's motivating them? Or do they really believe this is true? So here's what we're going to do today. I didn't mention it earlier, but I'll mention it now. I know that sometimes people think you're trying to sell a book. I want you to have the truth. I don't care if you buy the book. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you all PDF files, MP3s, and videos of all these talks today. So you'll have them. You can download them to your hard drive. You can save them, do whatever you want. You're going to get one email from me next week. It's going to give you a download link. You're going to go to that link, and you're going to have three folders, one folder or four folders for each talk, and you'll be able to go there and get all the materials that support this talk, right? Today's talk is really just a book in an overview, but I want you to have that, and that'll cost you nothing. And uh, just get your name and email on there, and I'll send it to you. My, my daughter, when I go back home, she puts it all on an Excel file, and I just dump it into a Word document, into an uh, email, right? It's easy to cut and paste in there, and away it goes. Financial greed, sexual lust, or relational lust, driven by some relational desire, if it's women, it's a relational lust. If it's men, it's sexual lust. It's, that's the way it usually ends up being. This is the way it is. So that's an, an important um, motive I have to consider. Finally, the pursuit of power. Pursuit of power. That can look different. Nobody comes in my neighborhood and disrespects me. Pop. That's a power issue. Right? So a lot of times the pursuit of power looks a little different than a senator trying to get a, get a you know... A, a seat. But what causes you to revenge? I want to go one motive before that. So yeah, revenge. Over what? What are you revengeful about? He took 40, she took $40,000 of my money. My retirement money. He was vengeful. In an act of revenge, he killed her because of $40,000. So I always ask him, what's the preceding question? He's angry. What's he angry about? He's vengeful. What's he vengeful about? You got to get back to the motive. And these are really the only three. And it just helps you to kind of clarify who you're looking for. So the question I have related to the disciples is, what is the motive for the 12? It has to be one of these three because these are the only three that are. So we've got to ask ourselves a question. Did they get you know, a lot of girlfriends because of this activity? Did they get like rich? Now, you might argue whether they became influential in their own community. I don't, I don't know. Read Paul's letters. It sounds to me like he's making an awful, a case awfully hard that he should be respected because he's not being respected. I mean, it's like the, the, nothing good came out of any of this activity. These folks said they saw something. And then they went around the globe telling others that they saw something. And they consistently paid for it with their lives. What's in it for them? 
There's got to be an easier way to get a buck, to live a life, to have a girlfriend. There's got to be a better way than this. And this is how these folks died. Now, the traditions related to the executions of the disciples are varied, and they are some are better attested than others. And I have a friend named Sean McDowell. If you look, Josh McDowell is an apologist, and Sean's actually a very good apologist in his own right. And for his dissertation, his PhD, he's working on the deaths of the apostles, and we're constantly talking about this. Some are better attested than others. But one thing I can tell you for sure, you have no ancient record of anyone recanting. No ancient non-Christian record. And if you think about this for a second, that would be a deal killer. It'd be like finding the body of Jesus in the tomb. If I can just pull the body out in the first century and say, hey guys, he's right over here, the whole thing ends. If I can just get one of these knuckleheads to recant, it's game over. If it was going to happen, it surely didn't get documented by anybody. And every record we have is of this kind of commitment to the truth. Now, think about it for a second. There are three witnesses to the golden plates in Mormonism. I happen to do a lot of work in Mormonism, okay? Sorry, bear with me. David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris. These are the three original witnesses to the golden plates. These folks recanted or walked away or were kicked out of Mormonism afterwards. Martin Harris was a member of several denominations after being a Mormon. If this thing was so powerfully true, he sure didn't act like it was. Because he got involved in all kinds of other denominations of Christianity. Not that Mormonism is a denomination of Christianity. So the point is, this is not the case for any of the twelve. The twelve died committed without recanting to what they said they saw. That to me was pretty powerful. Let's end with this. Yeah, but they're Christians. And you know, if you want accurate history, you can't look at a Christian author because Christian authors, they're going to be lying about this stuff. They're friends of Jesus. Of course they write nice things about Jesus. They like Jesus. Duh. That's just such a stupid argument. I have to show you how stupid it is. Let's go back to our bank robbery. By the way, when you work robbery homicide desk, if you're not working homicides, what are you working? You're working the robbery homicide desk. If you're not working homicides, what are you working? <laughs> robberies. That's why a lot of my illustrations are robberies. We have a lot more robberies than we have homicides. This is true for every city. So let's go to our robbery. Here's a bank robbery. Our guy has already given the demand note to the teller. Without saying a single word, he's able to get the teller to give him all the money. He's got the money written on. He's already showed his weapon to the, to the teller. All that stuff's back in his pocket now. And this looks like a relatively low-key transaction. But it's a bank robbery. Now, when he walked in, he got in line to do the bank robbery, like everybody else. He didn't make a big fuss of it. He wanted to do it low-key. He walked in, and sure enough, Kathy, behind the uh, assistant manager's desk, saw him and recognized him immediately from high school. Bad luck. Walked in, and the one place you walk in and have a high school, what are the odds of that, right? They weren't even anywhere near their hometown. So, sure enough, she sees him, and she's like, I'm going to say hello to him. His name is Robert, but she can't get to him before the robbery because she's got a customer. She figures, I'll talk to him after he's done with this transaction. But while he's in the middle of this transaction, she looks up to her coworker, and her coworker has the look in her eyes like, I'm being robbed. Well, no kidding. She's shocked. Kathy can't believe it. Because this guy, Robert, she'll tell you later, was be the last person on earth she'd ever think would do a robbery. If she had to make a list of everyone she knew from high school, Robert's on the bottom of the list. This guy's like top student, top athlete, involved in student body leadership. This guy was like top drawer in a sweet disposition. She was shocked. I know because it says so on that slide, right? (laughs) And she's shocked because she never thought of Robert in this way based on what she knew about Robert. Make sense? 
Now, should I go in and interview her as a, as a, uh, a witness? Should I trust her testimony? I don't think so. Think about it. She's committed now. She thinks that this guy's a bank robber. She's convinced that Robert Smith's a bank robber. You might even say that she's a Robert Smithian. You can't ask Robert Smithians for the truth about Robert Smith. She's a Robert Smithian. Do you see how stupid that is? Yeah, she's a Robert Smithian now, but when he walked in the door, she didn't, she didn't, that's why she was shocked. She didn't start off with a bias against Robert.